All right. We are going to be continuing on through our anchor series. Um, and one of the things I, I, I mean, I kind of knew, but I didn't totally know, is that anchors were an early symbol uh, in the early church for following Christ. That they would, you would find these in, in gravestones and that people would show anchors to demonstrate that they were following Christ because they were anchoring themselves to Christ. So in the anchor sermon series, what we're doing is we're going through the catechism. And a catechism is a series of questions and answers that the church put together to help people to form their theology. And so when we look at like the, uh, theological training, it goes all the way back to the early church and that one of the earliest creeds that the early church had was Jesus is Lord. And that was something that they would repeat to one another uh, and because it was this way of having a right understanding of who God is, and, and by saying Jesus is Lord, it was just this creed that they would recite to uh, essentially uh, have good theology. And theology, what you believe about God, is extremely powerful. For example, if you believe that God is angry, then you will live your life in fear. But if you believe God is present and loving, you will have the ability to live freely. You know that he loves you, and you know that you have grace, and you have freedom to be able to make mistakes. So catechism is a way of helping us to see God rightly. We're going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, it was developed by the uh, Church of Scotland, England, and Ireland in 1648, and essentially it's 107 questions and then answers. So these are all of the questions that we have gone through already. Uh, question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question 18, how did mankind become sinful? Question 27, in what ways was Christ humiliated within his own creation? Question 30, how does the Holy Spirit apply to believers? Question 38, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? And then last week, question 58, what is the fourth commandment? So today, what we're going to be going through is question 63, what is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So, I think it's easy to say that as we listen to the news and just look out over all of humanity, it's obvious that people wrestle with what it means to be human. And I think just one simple example of this, because I could draw from so many, I mean, the amount of mass shootings that are happening within our own country are just off the charts. And whatever reason it is that you say, like, well, this is the reason or this isn't the reason, it's happening. And it's just wild in that people really wrestle with what it means to be human. And then just even personally, uh, we can ask questions like, what am I here for? How do I parent? What does it mean to be married? How do I be a good husband or a wife? How do I deal with finances? How do I deal with my emotions? How do I deal with intimacy? What does it mean to worship? What does it mean to follow Christ? And we wrestle with many of these questions. I think one helpful uh, theological perspective uh, is this. I'd seen this many years ago, and it really just took me by surprise. And it says this, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having, having a human experience. Pierre uh, Chardin, he was a, a Catholic priest in France. 
And in all actuality, we're spiritual beings who are learning what it means to become human. And so when we read the Bible in certain ways, it's like this fantastic book and wonderful in every way. It is a very practical book and it answers some very important questions. Who is God? Who am I? And how should I live out my worship to God? And so in this section of the Catechism, last week, this week, and then next, next week, we'll be going through a couple of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are something that we find in the Old Testament. And of course, there's the famous Charlton Heston movie. But it's very practical of what the Ten Commandments are. How should I act as a human? What, what things should I do? What things should I participate in or not participate in? And so I kind of think about like the Ten Commandments as kind of like in a very simple way when we look at them just at first, it's kind of like guardrails when you go bowling. And you put, anyone ever use the guardrails? And you put those guardrails up because you want to stay in the lane. But you know you're not that good of a bowler, and so you, know, you go into the gutter or whatever, and so you put the guardrails on. And so the Ten Commandments can be, in many ways, like guardrails. Well, well what, what is it that God is asking from me? How should I behave? What does it actually mean to be human? How do I do this? And so there's the Ten Commandments, and this is just a summary of them. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't be jealous of what your neighbor has. So, as you look at these, I mean, it's just a very simple, like, okay, well, these are things that would make me somewhat of a functional human and at the same time help me to be able to worship God. And so Jesus, as a Jew, would have grown up with all of the Ten Commandments, and when he was asked about the greatest commandment, he essentially just summarizes them. Matthew 22, uh, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, talking to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So when we're looking at the Ten Commandments, something that we can overlook is that the first four, essentially, uh, they're, they're about my relationship with God. The first four. Okay? It's about how I should act. I'm not, I should know other gods before God. Don't make any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. But then 5 through 10 are all about how we should treat one another, other people in my life. And so Jesus summarizes this when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and, and, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so how we act towards one another really does reflect the depth of our faith, okay? Again, how we act towards one another really does reflect the depth of our faith. And so C.S. Lewis said this, when we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. What we do matters, how we treat other people matters. How we represent ourselves in public spheres matters. It really does. And so when you think about where we're at right now, 
and we see Jesus being associated with things that he would not be associated with, it makes it very difficult for people to be able to come to know God or believe in him because if his people are acting in this way, well, what does that mean about the very one that they're worshiping or following? These are stats that I've shown before, and I'll show them again. Um, the rise of the religious nuns looks similar in data from Pew Research Center and the General Society, uh, General Social Survey. You can see that at 1972, 90% of Americans would have said that they were Christian. Whether or not that was culturally or in reality, I don't know. But at this point in time, it's 63%. At the same time, you would have 5% of what we call the nuns, which are, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. But you're seeing that rise to 30%. The fastest growing faith system within the United States is the nuns. I don't believe in anything. Which is some, I, I think it's hard for us to believe that in Reading, which I call the Bible button of California. <clears throat> but I think we all have, I have stories of people who are leaving the faith, certainly leaving the church. I'm done. I'm done with all of this. What are you done with? And so what do people need? I don't know that they need truth moms. I mean, you should go to church. You should get saved. Okay. And I don't think they actually need like perfect Christians living perfect Christian lives as if, I don't even know if these people are Christian. <laughs> but you get it, right? We don't need a return to the Brady Bunch. And I, I, we, they don't need perfect people living perfect lives. And they don't need Christian bumper stickers. Although I really... I feel like I need to get this bumper sticker. <laughs> I, did, I did used to be cool one point in time in my life. <laughs> then I got a minivan. Um, I don't know that they need, right? They don't need truth bombs. They don't need perfect people living perfect lives. They don't need Christian bumper stickers. What they really need is real examples of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what they need. Real examples. Real people. Real people making mistakes. Real people not getting it completely right. Real people like, I messed up, but I'm still trying to follow Jesus. Real people just pointing towards Jesus. Christians keep thinking like more government control and you know, legalism and the perfect family photos at least. But imagine if Christians were the catalyst of real family reconciliation. What if we were actually known as the people who initiated and enacted real family reconciliation? Because it's one thing to talk about them and there and all those things, but once we start talking about the family, it all starts to get really tough because we all have families. And family's really hard. That is kind of what we're talking about today. All right, Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So essentially what we're seeing here is the expert in the law trying to reduce the definition because people who are experts in the law want to like get down to the definition of every single word. He wants to reduce the definition of neighbor to what would be most convenient for him. But Jesus knows this, and so he's not going to have any of it. He's like, I know your games. I'm not going to have any of this. And so Jesus shares a story about love and not legalism. And so this broken man is on the side of the road, and he's all bloody and all these things. And so these two people who are priests or a part of the Levitical priesthood, they, they are off to their religious duties, but they can't stop and touch this guy who's bloody on the side of the road because if they do, they won't be able to perform their priestly duties, okay? So they can't actually show this guy genuine compassion or do something for him because then that would make them unclean in God's sight. And so this Samaritan, who basically is an outcast in Judaism, he stops it because he's not concerned about the law per se. He wants to show genuine love to a man on the side of the road. So when we think about what it means to actually live out the Ten Commandments or live out the greatest commandments, when you think about who my neighbor is, our parents certainly fall within that sphere. Right? We don't say, like, are my parents my neighbors? Well, no, they're your parents. So these are the people when we talk about, like, loving, they're in there. And they're also in the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5.16, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and then it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So why should we honor our father and mother? And I think that oftentimes we can get lost in the legalism of, of, it, of it all. And that the, the expert in the law gets all the right answers. He says exactly what it is that he's supposed to say. I mean, he knows the answer. Jesus asks him and he's like, oh, I've got this. I've been studying this since I was a young child. But Jesus wasn't necessarily just looking for right answers. Um, it's easier to say I should honor my dad and my mother than it is to actually honor my dad and my mother. The right answer is I should honor mom and dad. But it's much harder to actually do that thing. And so, again, God isn't interested in turning the Ten Commandments into legalism that you should or should not. I have to honor my parents because the Bible says so. If you're doing that and you're reading this like, okay, I'm going to do this as a legalistic rule and I should do this, uh, that you're really kind of missing the point. God is really interested in transforming you into someone who lives the Ten Commandments without really thinking about it that you're so transformed by grace that you just naturally would not have any idols, that you would naturally not put any gods before him, that you would naturally honor your father and your mother, that you, hopefully, this is not a newsflash, that you wouldn't kill. God is transforming you into a life with no guardrails needed. That's what he's aiming at that you'd be able to bowl without any guardrails on, that you'd be able to live life in following Christ to where you wouldn't have to keep thinking like, should I, should I or should I not do this? Should I involve myself in this or should I not? It would just, you would just so know 
that your relationship with Christ is so deep and meaningful that you would just know. Like, I, don't, I know what I need to do in this particular situation. I honor my parents because I want to, because it's good. Another thing here is that we don't live in a culture of honor. Here's, this will be, be a funny slide, but it's going up anyways. My wife and I were watching this show on Netflix. I don't know if anyone else has seen this. It's called The Physical 100. Has anybody watched this besides my wife and I? You guys are like, what is this? Um, essentially what it is is in South Korea, they come up with these like games of all these people who are like basically the most athletic and obviously ripped people in South Korea. And they do all these different events. And it's actually really cool because they're trying to figure out what is the most... Uh, uh, the best physique, uh, the most ideal physique. And so they do all these games in terms of like you have to hang from something and some are about strength, some are about endurance and all these things. And so my wife, and it's really actually funny. One of the things when you watch foreign shows is you realize like, and this, well, whatever. Americans are not nice people. When you watch this, they, the competitors are so nice to one another. They're constantly deferring to each other. They're just constantly bowing. Oh, anytime they go up head, head to head, they like honor each other. Oh, oh, I'm so thankful to go against you. And I'm thinking, if this was Americans, there'd be like no deferring. They'd be like, you suck and I'm going to kill you, right? And so um, in, in the end, when it comes to the last two guys and they do this, they do this competition, they both stand up and they share speeches about the things that they're most thankful for. And one guy stands up and he says, I want to thank the Lord who's given me all this strength, but I also want to thank my parents. I want to honor them for all the work that they put into me and all this, right? And then the next guy gets up there and, and he's not a believer, or at least he didn't thank you know, Christ or anything, and he gets up there and what does he say? I want to start by thanking, thanking my parents for everything that they did. And I'm like, again, if this was an American show, no dude would get up there and be like, I just want to thank my mom and my dad. This wouldn't happen. We just don't think in those terms within this culture because in many ways, because we're, we live in an individualistic culture to where, how, do, how did I get what I have? It was all me. I did it all. I achieved what I achieved on my own. I'm my own man. I don't need my mom and my dad. I did it all. Which is clearly not true. So why should I honor my, my parents? And I would say my family as well. And I realize that families can be really complicated and I can't cover all the scenarios because all of us have very different families. Um, but at the same time, it is the fifth commandment, so you just got to jump in there and do your best. So why should I honor my parents? Um, First off, you wouldn't be here without your parents. I mean, that's just like number one. You're like, um, you just wouldn't be here without them. And so that should lead to some degree of gratitude. Like, thank you so much for taking mom out on a date that night. Um, and you have to remember, too, why should I honor my parents is that uh, you have to remember that at one point in time, you were a teenager. You may not remember being a teenager, but you were a teenager. And for anyone who has ever had teenagers, 
hopefully having teenagers just makes you repent to your parents like nonstop. You're like, I am so sorry. Uh, that, I am so sorry. Um, and again, I think it's easier to love strangers. But again, imagine if all Christians were the catalyst of real family reconciliation. I mean, like truly, how would that change the landscape of the way that people look at us? That, you know, I don't really, Christians are really weird in so many ways, but man, they truly know how to reconcile families. That'd be so powerful. So, as it is within my power, I will do what I can to honor my parents. Okay, so why should I honor my parents? First, I think it's important to remember your parents and your family are only humans. That's all they are. That's all they've ever been. Um, I, I think in many ways we think that they're like, you know, we used to think they were superhumans with superpowers, but really they're just people. That's all they are. You know, my, my youngest daughter, who is uh, 14, uh, we were talking about parenting and all these things, and she looked at me and she says, I will never do what you did in terms of my parenting. And I said, that's completely correct. You'll do what you do. There's no getting out of it. I'm human, I'm going to make mistakes, and she's human. She may not do exactly what it is that I did that now she's so like up in arms about, but she will do what she does, which is to be human and to, and to mess up parenting and to get certain parts of it wrong. At first you think, again, your parents are, aren't even human. We think like, oh man, you know everything and you're all powerful and you can do anything it is that you want. And then hopefully you realize they're just people. And this is one of the things, I like looking at pictures, especially old pictures, because in many ways, you think like, okay, they were different, they had it different, but all, all people have all the same needs. I mean, really, the needs of people hasn't changed since there's been humans. And same with your parents. There are, they have hurts. They have dreams, they have pain, they have success, they have failure, they have wants and needs and feelings. They're just people. All these people from different generations and ethnicities and places around the earth, having a child elicits the same response out of all these people. And most of them, I mean, if you're a parent, you know how insecure it can be to be a parent. And even though your kids look at you like you should know everything, you're like, I kind of, I need to read the manual again. Like, I'm kind of lost. But, you know, it's very hard. And so when we think about what it means to be human, you, out of all people, should know what it, that feels like. You know what it's like to have dreams and failures and success and hurts and needs and wants. Your parents are just people. Your parents and your family are just people navigating life. Um, and they've all been hurt by life. My wife, when I <laughs> went to go down to, to ask for my, she wasn't my wife then, and I was going to go ask her dad um, if I could marry her. And so we drive all the way down to this 
uh, gold mining gulch, essentially, called Seneca, which is outside of Chester, California. And there was, all there was down there was a bar that hadn't been used in a long time. And it's where Linda's dad had a cabin that he built. And so uh, his grandpa was literally born down in Seneca. So, I mean, it's just a long family history of being down there. So I'm going there to ask for her uh, dad's permission to marry her. And I had heard about her dad, and he was rough and tumble and all that stuff. And I was like, well, I grew up in a house with a guy that was, you know, kind of wild too. So that's all, all good. So we show up probably about like, I don't know, we'll say like two, three or something like that. And I show up, and he has a, he has a gun on his hip. He's clearly been drinking all day long. And um, we're out there, and we're gonna have we're gonna have dinner. And so, in the midst of the dinner, we're hanging out, and something happens to where a bowl kind of like gets messed up on the table. And he literally starts dropping f bombs on his then wife. And I'm like, whoa, like this is pretty intense. I mean, we're down in a gold mining gulch with a guy who's been drinking all day with a gun. I never thought like he was gonna shoot me or anything. But it was all just like really wild. It's like I never got around to asking him if I could marry his daughter because I didn't think it was really relevant to him. And I'm like, well. And then as we were driving away, <laughs> Linda's stepmom's all, you have our blessing. Ah, you know, I'm like, out of there. So I had, then obviously, Mary, Linda and I have been married for 22 years, and I've gotten to know her dad over the years, and obviously he has a really troubled past, and, you know, he's done things that he really shouldn't have done, and he was not a good guy. And so at his, at his mother's funeral, you know, we sat down and we talked, and, and we tried to get together with him, and it's never really worked out, but at, at the funeral of his mom, we sat down, and I sat down, and I talked to him, and, and I started asking him questions about his life, because I know that, um, although I didn't know the details, I knew that he had trauma in his life, like he didn't come from, you know, he's not coming from uh, some great place, and so um, he had told me a story about when his dad came back from World War II, and I said, well, tell me about your childhood. What do you remember? And it was, he was always kind of resistant. And then he told me this story about when um, his dad was coming home from World War II. And he had heard about it on the radio that the warships were coming in and, and that his dad was coming home. And so he ran in to tell his mom, like, Mom, Dad's coming home. And she just slaps him across the face. We do not show emotion in this house. Whoa, that's tough. I said, well, what did you want to be when you grew up? He said, alive. Not a joke, man. He sat out in the backyard and was talking to his friend about hopefully being able to become a millionaire one day. And his dad overheard him and came out with a belt and just started beating him. So on the one hand, when I go down to the gulch, and I see him, I'm like, whoa, man, this is... But then as you start to get his story, you're like, oh, wait. Like, the story didn't start with you. Like, it actually started somewhere else. Oh, so what you're doing is you're just expressing the pain and the hurt that you have inside of you, and you're just allowing that to continue down generation into generation. The things that he did as an adult, it doesn't make it okay, but it does create some type of context... Why should I honor him? Because he's just a human. 
And he's a hurt human. And he has pain as a human. I mean, he's just a little kid that's getting slapped in the face because his dad's coming home. Nowadays, because of the way that we've treated him, my oldest daughter, Sienna, whenever we hang out with him, she always plays cribbage with him. Always. Just sits down and plays cribbage with him. Doesn't really do much. He's not the most talkative guy. But just even having his own granddaughter acknowledge his presence, actually want to spend time with him in a meaningful way. The only time he's ever come down to uh, Reading is when Linda and I got married because he hates the big city because somehow this is the big city. Um, and then he came down for Linda's grad or for Sienna's graduation. Just that small bit of honor that our family's been able to give him has changed him. And now somehow, I don't know how it's happening, but he's going to France with his three daughters this summer. I mean, know how, I mean the progression has been wild. So as it's within my power, I'll, I will do what I can to honor my parents and my family. So why should I honor my parents and family? One, my parents and family are only human. That's all that they are, and I know what that, that's like, and it's really hard. And then two, my parents and family are worthy of grace. You know, I think in many ways when we think about grace, we are, you know, for, for the grace of God's appear that offers salvation to all people, and we're like, this could be a picture in your home, and you're like, this is so beautiful, and I love grace, and we all love grace, and we're saved because of grace, and I mean, I, I love it. When we look at the Ten Commandments, again, the first four about my relationship with God, five through ten are about our relationships towards other people, right? So love God and love your neighbors. We receive grace, and at the same time, we are meant to also be givers of that grace. It's not just about us receiving it. But we have to back up. What makes you worthy of grace? Or, said another way, what makes you a good candidate for grace? Like, why would I know that you need grace or deserve it? Really? It's because we're failures. Failure is a prerequisite of grace. Why would I need it if I didn't fail? It's a false idea to think that people need to do something to deserve your honor. What did you do to deserve honor from God? Are, am I worthy of God honoring me with grace? If the prerequisite of grace is failure, then I am worthy. <laughs> over and over and over again. I need grace because I fail. Your parents and family are worthy of grace as well. Again, God isn't interested in you turning the Ten Commandments into a legalistic law. I have to show honor to my parents because it's in the Bible. This might be a good starting point, like guardrails on a bowling aisle. But the bigger question is, why wouldn't I want to honor my parents? Why wouldn't I want to honor those people within my family? And I have every bit of dysfunctional family as anyone else in the room. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't that be a starting point for me? And these start to jump into some very hard questions. 
God is interested in you experiencing grace and then becoming the type of person for whom being graceful, graceful will be a natural reaction. That's what he's interested in. Not necessarily in you following the law, but you experience grace and you're like, wow, I did not deserve this. And then turning around and looking at people and saying, you don't deserve this either, but I feel like I, I should be graceful to you. I should extend grace to you. doesn't mean that what you did was okay. But why would I accept something that I don't deserve and then withhold it from other people? My stepfather, man, he's a bad dude. He's gone now. He's a bad guy, man. Bad guy. Just, I think I spent 11 years with the guy and it was just abuse for 11 years. It was tough. Still dealing with it, even to this day. Uh, still dealing with talking with some of my siblings about like trauma. And, you know, and here's the interesting thing for me, right? Like I'm getting beat up, and so then I start beating up my younger siblings, and so then I'm both the victim and the villain. That's, did I choose that? I didn't choose that, right? That was, that was Michael's doing. I was getting beaten, and so I'm just like, well, I'm going to beat you. So now we're dealing with all of these things. And so I remember at one point in time when I was a young guy, I mean, I knew I was getting older, and I knew he was getting older too. And my goal was, at some point in time, you're going to be old, and I'll be in my prime. And my goal is, at some point in time, when I'm in my prime and you're old, I'm just gonna, I, we are going to fight, and I'm going to beat you down. But then I met Jesus. So that plan had to go out the window, right? Jesus ruining my plans. And so at some point in time, I was thinking about it, I was like, I've been forgiven of everything that I've ever done. And not just for the things that people know about. I mean, like for everything. Things that I'm really ashamed of. Things that when I'm partying and a teenager that I don't want anyone to know. I've been forgiven of all of that. So what does that mean for Michael? And so I called him up one day. And I said, hey, Michael, I just want you to know, you know, I'm following Jesus. And Jesus has forgiven me of everything I've ever done. And I forgive you, and I love you. Like, Christ loves me. Now, I didn't know, it was like, I had to qualify it. I'm like, I'm not like, I, love, I have a love for you. Um, and so he made my little sister get on the phone, and he said, hey, get on the phone, I want you to hear this. Will you repeat that? And I said, yeah, I want you to know that I forgive you, and that I love you. Did Michael change and get saved? No. But that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to accept the grace that God has given me, realize that the prerequisite for grace is failure, that Christ comes and gives me that grace as a part of the, as our relationship, and that how am I not supposed to then extend that to other people, even though it's very, it, this is difficult stuff, man. This is not easy. But it is real. If you really want to know how amazing grace is, try giving it away to people you think don't deserve it. Because that's what God does regularly. Many things are said of Christians, judgmental, power-hungry, self-righteous, legalistic. Again, what if we were known as the people who reconciled families, our own families? What would that be like? Beyond, I mean, I don't, some of you are like, this is impossible. And at least it's worth trying. I'm trying. And it's really hard. 
What if we were known as people who, who reconciled families? Isn't that what God is doing in us? Reconciling creation to himself, reconciling his family to himself. We literally would only be doing what God has been doing. Reconciling his family to himself. So, as it is within my power, I will do what I can to honor my parents and my family. I mean, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. We are going to have communion. We do this every Sunday. Um, communion is the sign of the covenant that Christ left for us on the uh, Last Supper. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, take this, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the wine and, and they shared the cup and that the wine represents the blood of the covenant that it washes away our sins. The other beautiful thing about this, he didn't choose gold and diamonds he chose things that are actually within everyone's house, which is bread and fruit, because the kingdom is meant to be represented in our everyday lives. The kingdom of God is an everyday thing that we experience with him. And so the way that we take communion is if you are a follower of Christ or if you would like to start following Jesus today, then you come down the center aisle, you grab a piece of the cracker, you dip it into the wine, you hold on to it, you go around the sides like this, you get back into your seats, uh, we hold on to it, and then in the end, when everyone has the elements, we will take communion together. So if you would like to take communion, please come on down.
Jesus, we thank you that you love us unconditionally. That you, by your life and your death and your resurrection, have extended to us grace, what we did not deserve, inviting us to come and sit with you at the table. Thank you for loving us in this way. Help us to see you rightly and to understand who we are in you rightly. Let's partake. Why don't we stand? Um, I'm going to pray for us, and if you want a prayer for anything, maybe something came up where you're like, man, I'm really wrestling with this. love to lay hands on you and pray for you. We are having a potluck downstairs. There's going to be plenty of food. You are invited. There's plenty of space. love to see you downstairs. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and again, if you want a prayer for anything, please come on up. Well, Lord, we thank you for this time to be able to gather. We thank you for the gift of your word that it guides us and gives us direction and shows us who you are and who we are in you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us, you would empower us to be able to be loved and to be able to love others. Open our eyes and our ears to the things that you have for us and help us to be able to say yes to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want a prayer, please come on up. And if you want to go downstairs and eat, there's plenty of food.